This is Stefan Hostetter, and I am just audible. So welcome to The Green Majority, everybody, on CAT 89.5. It's going to be a great show for you tonight. Uh, just to tease, uh, Darren Kester is in the building. Not in the studio right now, in the building. He gives a wave to the audience, as I'm sure all of you can tell. Uh, so we'll, he'll be showing up uh, in the third part of this show. But right now, uh, we're very excited to be joined uh, in studio by M.A. Ma. Thank you very much again, as always. Uh, and also Kevin Waugh. Nathan. Hi. <laughs> How you doing? Uh, and, and, and so the, the framing of the show today, it was, as, I, as I mentioned on the last show, uh, we, 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 we like to have themes here, don't we, M.A.? Sometimes. Oh, we, some, don't, we don't force connections, but we do like to point out overall trends and themes, for right. sure. Amazing. Uh, and so the theme of this month, uh, this week is actually, uh, so we just had, it's also a, a bit of a reflective period. Because uh, the dominant narrative coming out of Paris, uh, the, the COP21, of course, uh, was that in the beginning, it was the beginning of the end of fossil fuels, or at least that's what all of the press releases wanted you to think. Um, and, or at least it was the very, at the very least, it was the beginning of the last wave of environmentalists' fight against the ever-increasing emissions. I think that's maybe more, more fair, at least for the, how the activists felt about it. Uh, the, you know, this was at least a agreement they were going to use as the backst for the, for, the, for the fight that, you know, the fight of the century, uh, as we would obviously consider it. Um, but now a few months later, it's already been signed, uh, which is arguably better than could have been anticipated. Uh, we just had one of the largest global actions against fossil fuels uh, with Break Free. When in the second part of the show, we'll have Atiyah Jafar of 350.org coming to talk about that part of this. Uh, and Ontario uh, has, uh, has, seems to have pledged $7 billion in their carbon reduction strategy. Uh, so good news, right? Uh, also, this week had some bad news, uh, including, uh, of course, Kinder Morgan, the NEB, NEB approved Kinder Morgan, uh, and Saskatchewan has basically, in their throne speech, come out denying climate change. Uh, so, you know, you, you take us two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. Uh, and so what we're going to do with this show is try to actually take a look back, uh, starting uh, with Kevin Roy. Uh He was a U of T, U of T PhD student uh, who was part of the delegation uh, to COP21. Uh, and take a look at negotiations in Paris, uh, and then to sort of move forward to break free with, uh, with the team in the second half, and to sort of see where... Uh, you know, where we're headed, where we started, where we're headed, and, and, and project into the future of, of, uh, of what's going on. Also, a whole bunch of fun news that we're going to slide in throughout the show, because uh, we're that skilled at this. Uh, so, but to start, to start the show uh, with you, Kevin. Um, back in Paris, before heading, I'm just interested, like, because there was a whole wide range of expectations for Paris. Anywhere from this is going to be complete failure like the rest of them to this is literally going to save the world. Uh, but when you sort of got there at the beginning, what was the atmosphere of the talks, and especially within the sort of civil service or the places that you were sort of around, uh, did, did people actually think we were going to get something done? Mm, well, uh, first of all, good morning to you, Stefan. Good morning. Good morning <laughs> um, well, I think that the, um, the, the overall expectations as the start of the conference was uh, there was a very broad range. Um, so I think that uh, the community in general who was present had a good vibe about it because um, there had already been a lot of prep work going into the conference itself. But um, I, from talking to people, especially surprisingly from uh, the business community, um, were actually not that optimistic about the, the, abil uh, the ability of the governments to reach an agreement. Mm. Um, so, but I think as the, as, the, as the conference evolved and as the discussion progressed, uh, it became clear that actually everybody was, was pulling in the same direction. There was a bit of a fear around uh, the beginning of the discussion, around the 1.5 versus 2 degree target. Um, but in the end, I think uh, it was probably, as a lot of people put it, the best we could have um, achieved. 
uh, given the circumstances. Great. Okay. So, so I want to get back to the one point five yeah. and a half a second, but uh, I think it's good to actually. I think that's actually, actually you remind me of a good question here, which is uh, everyone sort of has a different opinion now of actually what they how they felt Paris went, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 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 again, it's yeah. the same range of save the world to to there was nothing. Uh, where do you fall on that spectrum? Um, I think that where I fall on the spectrum is on the very cautiously optimistic. Okay. <laughs> so it's a very prudent uh, position, I think, <laughs> and I'm not, you know, uh, but. I think what I feel is the most important thing that came out of Paris, um, because obviously with the commitments that were um, actually put on the table, it's no, nowhere near uh, close enough to actually reach the targets that um, have been uh, put forward. Um, but I think is the shift in mindset. Um, whereas a few years ago, just a few years ago, people had in their minds, I think, the idea of even a two-degree target as being you know, the absolute outmost we could consider. And the fact that now the two-degree target is, the well below two-degree target is in the agreement itself, and people are even willing to consider 1.5. I think that's, you know, this change in the wording that actually indicates that there's been a shift in people's perspective with respect to it. So if instead of becoming like a, an, you know, the, the best scenario we could possibly imagine, it becomes the mainstream scenario, then I think that it makes it easier for real action to actually come out of, come out of it. Now, Kevin, I understand that you come with a scientific background. Yes. So when, when we've talked about sort of integrating or mainstreaming this idea of 1.5 degrees Celsius, yes. um, but we're seeing this huge sort of deficit or gap between the political speak um, and the policies that are actually going to bridge that gap between Absolutely. what the, the, scientific, the scientists are telling us. Um, so, for example, we've had this news that three months in a row um, – global average temperature has smashed the record. So mm -hmm. April's been the hottest April on record. And, you know, the last seven months were, were one degree Celsius um, above the 1951 to 1980 mean. Yeah. Um, so when you're sitting where you are as somebody with a scientific background and there's essentially these alarm bells going off yeah. in terms of saying, well, we're already on this course that we're, we're barely – um, going to meet with all the measures in full force, this 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, target. How does that make you feel as somebody who was present when this came about? Are you still optimistic that um, the mindset, the shift in mindset is really enough to sort of carry us through making those mm -hmm. sweeping policy changes that we need to make? Well, I think that's where the cautiously uh, <laughs> optimistic comes in my, uh, in, in where I stand, because um, of course, it's you know it's a little bit of a progress from what we where we were before, but um, it's of course nowhere near we need to be um, because I think that there's even in terms of understanding of the scientific con like the consequences of climate change, so the scientific understanding, I don't think has really made it through to the uh, the, po the the politician world, um, and and I think that's really unfortunate because if we think even about um, rises that are temperature rises that are closer to 1.5 degree or even one degree, um, there are still you know very important consequences that um, will will hap will occur uh, on the climate system. Um, what I study is past sea level change, and to me, I think sea level change in the next uh, centuries is really one of the you know uh, most important impacts that people tend to underestimate because it's so far off. 
and, and, and so gradual. Uh, you know, exactly. If, if you slowly, slowly lose uh, your your space. Yeah. And Darren, uh, I, said, I said he wouldn't be in until until the until the third quarter, but he couldn't even get himself there. What's up? <laughs> Oh, I just uh, I have a, a question for the panel, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been binging on home on uh, from lack of anything else to do on American news because the American elections are hilariously it's a roller coaster ride, it's a blockbuster, <laughs> um, and it's far more interesting than anything on Netflix. Um, and one of the things that I've noted we we saw during Harper's reign um, the impudence of the Canadian Prime Minister to Im- influence foreign policy. Uh, if in a nightmare scenario Trump were to be elected, I think a a far more realistic than most people will give it credit for a scenario, nightmare scenario where Trump gets elected. I think Justin Trudeau will be equally as impotent in influencing Canada's position on the world stage. Um, so I'm wondering uh, specifically with Kevin, but anyone please comment uh, on thoughts of, you know, how much to what degree does Canada's internal policy even matter based on, you know, with reference to what's going on in the, the U.S. The U.S. is hilariously corrupt and is controlled by corporations. They dictate policy to everybody else, including us. Um, do we matter at all? Do, is, should we not be focusing on what's going on in the U.S.? Uh, well, okay. Well, do, you, do you want to jump in, Kevin? you want to take that one? Sure. Um, well, I think the way I see it is that, um, and the way that the economy, for, for good or bad, is has become so integrated um, worldwide that if you have... Um, even if the U.S. ends up pulling in another direction, I think Canada's influence will be felt because of that integration of the economies. So the U.S. cannot go on its own and do what it, what it wants on that file if everybody else pushes the other way. So I think that's more from that global perspective. It's not ideal, and it's very scary to see that what, what could happen on that front. Like, yeah, uh, yeah I, th- I think you'd also see the United States becoming increasingly isolationist. That's a big part of Trump's policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think you'd honestly, one part of the thing you'd see is that you'd see Canada moving away from, uh, moving away at least from all of its trade with the United States and actually probably diversifying where its its trade is, mm-hmm. uh, in part because the United States would be, because a big part of Trump's Trump's foreign policy is to, is, and trade policy is to actually, you know, he's he's a Republican who's against, quote unquote, free trade. Uh, he's sort of a, 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 a anomaly on that front. Yeah, I mean, that would be that would be an extremely long term process because our economies are so integrated. But, you know, I was having a very similar conversation to a member of parliament with a member of parliament a few months ago. And he said, well, you know, if the U.S. doesn't get on board, aren't we just a drop in a bucket, basically? And I said, but we do have input into the quality of air that we breathe. So just taking it down a level um, and not just thinking about global emissions and the big emitters, um, everyone always likes to default to China and the US. But essentially, as much as we it is shared air, shared commons, if we continue to pollute, say, in the greater Toronto area, the way we are, we're already seeing respiratory problems, especially especially around um, among young children. Um, so essentially, do we not want to control our own quality of life? Because as much as things can blow over from the US, we do have an immediate impact in our own surrounding environment. And I think people lose sight of that sometimes mm-hmm. when we talk about these big numbers. Yeah. And I, th- and I think it's also important to note that a lot of Canadian policy isn't directed by the entire United States, but states themselves. You know, California is the one, is, is the state that gets to decide what, our, what, what basically our vehicle reg- what our vehicles are. Uh, and, and cities themselves. And cities, yeah, exactly. And cities themselves have, have an impressive power mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, so to bring it back to some, to, uh, to sort of your area of expertise, which is sea level rise, Kevin. Um, there's another article that came out uh, from about, about that aspirational 1.5 target, uh, which basically it's Carbon Brief has issued a report arguing that if you understand our current CO2 emissions, uh, we're basically five years away 
from 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 a good chance of preventing ourselves from under one point five degrees. Uh, which means that we're looking at two again. Uh, and I sort of want to understand, you, you sort of, I believe it's since the last ice age, you've started sea level rise. And you also mentioned that there are some current effects even going going right now uh, that, are, that, that should be concerning. So I'm kind of curious if you could sort of give us an overview of what, to, what one would expect, say, between even from one where we're at now in sea level rise all the way up to, say, two and then beyond. Yeah. Um, so I think the, main, the first thing to understand before we, we go into mm-hmm. giving actual numbers is the fact that um, sea level rise is is not a uniform process. So a lot of regions will in around the world will be uh, much more impacted than others, mm-hmm. uh, simply due to a geology or to the recovery com- from the the last ice age. So there are there are there are um, a lot of impacts that go into that. And further than that, um, there are many things that impact sea level. There is not only the fact that you've got melting ice sheets, which are not the process of which is not very well understood yet. There are a lot of tip- tipping points in those systems that we don't understand very well yet. Um, for So a lot of the uncertainty a century from now comes from that. But there's also the fact that a temperature rise means warmer water, which uh, means that sea level would rise by itself just because it's warmer water. Uh, so thermal expansion of the water itself is an important component. So there are many things that go into, into that. And I want to say that if we look at the 1.5 or 2 degree, um, it's hard to, to have, as I said, to have a, a meaningful number, mm-hmm. a very specific number, but uh, we're still looking at uh, sea level rise that will go around one meter um, for the century and probably way beyond that, um, even at 1.5 degrees up to 2,200, it could reach two meters depending on those, uh, the reaction of the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. So um, it, it's a very... I think it's a very concerning uh, process because if you think about infrastructure, um, a lot of the investments that happen now or say in the next 50 years will not feel the, the most of the sea level impact, but you're still committed to having that infrastructure in place for 100 years, which then becomes an issue. Yeah. Uh, so, can you give us an understanding of uh, people here say one meter of sea level rise, no. uh, and then they think, well, tides go in and out. Or anything like that. Like I, I, kind of, I, I'm, I'm even sort of struggling understanding sort of what what that looks like okay. in, a, in, a, in a real in a, in, a, in a, you know like, does that mean Florida's gone? How many how many meters does that have to rise for, for Florida to no longer exist? Well, Florida is depending on on, on where you go in in the state um, is already um, going to be in trouble um, right. with the current sea level projections. Uh, for instance, with the city of my of Miami uh, by mid century could already feel a lot of a lot of problems. The main impact of sea level um, comes from the fact that you raise the, if you raise the mean sea level and then you have storms on top of them, then that's where the issue so it becomes important. So I think that the, the, way, the best way to frame it is how you know, floods that are one in a hundred year events for certain locations, how that statistic will change in the future. So for instance, there are uh, studies that suggest that um, one in 100 year events um, in New York could become one in 10 year events um, throughout the 21st century. So from a planning perspective, that becomes very, very uh, important, especially with what we saw recently um, with uh, the problems they had with uh, hurricanes reaching, reaching the coast there. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I actually was in New York City right after Hurricane Sandy about, yeah. a, about a week later. Uh, I, I think I, the first day that, that some of the subways were reopened, I was, I was on it. And, and that was the crazy thing was the subways were totally decimated mm-hmm. uh, because they're all underground. Yeah. Uh, and and you, you couldn't go through all their parks because it, it was it was a it was a whole you know the whole lower lower side was was just was just devastated. And on top of that, maybe if I should ask uh, this this perspective of looking how floods could happen and how their frequency could change in coastal regions is a very I would say Western perspective on it because of course there are countries that are very low lying in themselves, close to sea level that will be directly impacted by. Um, Actual the actual level of the mean sea level. You don't need to have storms for them to disappear under uh, sea level wise projections. Right. My understanding is that for some of the small island nations, we're actually looking at that happening, say, in our lifetimes. Is that right? Like in terms of some of the very low lying uh, small islands, is that possible um, that in our lifetime we will see islands disappearing? Yeah, yeah. It's already it's already started for some of the lower lying ones. Um, but of course, the thing is, is that as I mentioned before, sea level is not uh, a single. There's not only a single factor right. changing sea level. So, what you will see is that for regions where that are currently subsiding already because of tectonic activity or other processes, then if on top of that you put sea level rise, then those are the places that will be the first affected. And actually, mostly affected by that. Awesome. Uh, so we're going to go to. We're almost done here. So we're going to go music break in about a minute or two. But I want to give you sort of one last shot uh, to explain. Um, you know, you 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 were at Paris. You obviously uh, care mm-hmm. about this a lot. Uh, what's the sort of thing you feel one thing you wanted to get people to know better or more? Like I didn't even know the like when you mentioned the the fact that sea level rises because it's warmer temperature and it'll expand. I never thought of that. I had never even, I, that was not something I ever factored in. So what's something you sort of wish people would understand better? Um, I think that really the way I see it is that um, a lot of the, um, I feel that what stops a lot of action from happening from governments is the fact that the population in general doesn't seem to grasp the, the long-term consequences. Um, we're not very, as, as a species, I think, uh, you know, uh, built to think in those long-term 100-year consequence uh, time fr- uh, frame. So I think that really it's for people to think as much as possible 100 years from now, what are the consequences of what we're doing now? And for governments that's, that want to get reelected for in four-year cycles, mm-hmm. it's really hard to do that. And, uh, and I think that it, it's still a work in progress, and I think that there's a lot of education to still be done in the, in the general, in, in the public, and I think it's, it's important to actually do that, do that work because it will, that's what will ultimately drive action is if people realize that there's really a problem to solve. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kevin Ra, uh, U of T PhD candidate uh, and COP21 delegate. Thank you so much. Uh, Ed, uh, what are we listening to? All right. uh, We got The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down by the band. All right.
Welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5, or perhaps across any one of the wonderful radio syndicates across Canada and in the United States, or maybe on Rebel.ca or a podcast, which you can find on thegreenmajority.ca. Uh, welcome, everyone. And I'm now actually, so thank you so much, Kevin Roy, again. Uh, I'm now in the studio with Atia Jafar from 350.org, and Darren Kaster is back. Welcome, Darren. Moving slowly closer to the microphone. <laughs> exactly. Uh, next time, you're coming from my chair, Darren. I know you're coming from my chair. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but so so what we're doing today again just a recap is that we're sort of we we started with COP twenty one and, and sort of what we saw there, uh, and then it was signed uh, and has not fully ratified in a lot of but but was at least signed in in, in New York a couple about a month ago, and now we're and then and then and then last weekend or over really we've been covering this for about a couple of weeks so it was quite a long process actually uh, of of the sort of three fifty org's global action of break free. And uh, there's one tweet that said that there was in three different continents had uh, had some sort of action stopping fossil fuels at one time, and that was like a, a monumental occasion to some extent. Um, so, Atia, you uh, you were involved in three fifty org, obviously. Uh, can you sort of explain the rationale behind Break Free, uh, and and also what what took place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to begin, it's uh, actually six continents. Um, Okay, closer <laughs> to the mic. <laughs> um, actually, so it was six continents. It's a, a glo- Break Free was a global wave of resistance against the fossil fuel industry. And um, by resistance, I mean really escalated direct action, um, largely involving civil disobedience in countries across the world. Um, and we were targeting as a movement um, some of the largest extraction points um, and transportation points for the fossil fuel industry. Um, and it de- and it's, it's no coincidence that it came almost about like six months after COP21. And the, the reason really is that um, as a movement, we know that the time to wait has ended, and it is the time where we need to, where our actions need to match the urgency of climate change. Um, and so, this global wave was kind of a, a way of sending a, a really, really clear and really bold message uh, in the aftermath of, of COP21 and after the agreement was signed. Um, and also, it was a defined moment for the movement. Uh, we weren't, um, you know, as historically, we've taken action. Um, we've we took action and formed red lines on the streets of Paris after COP21. Um, when leaders were meeting in New York, there was a, a 300,000 people march outside. Um, and this was this was a moment that we defined for ourselves and decision makers in the UN and politicians weren't defining for us. It was a movement 
um, of people deciding this is the time that we're going to take action as a global wave. Uh, so there were people in Germany, uh, 3,000 people in Germany over the course of a few days were taking action to uh, blockade one of the largest coal mines in the world. Um, and this was something that um, they had done last year as well. And this was an action that they did again this year uh, in De Galande. Um, in, in Australia, we had 2,000 people also taking action against coal um, and shutting down a large coal port in Australia. Um, we had actions happening targeting coal in, in Turkey, in South, uh, South Africa, in, uh, in the Philippines as well. And in Canada, of course, we were targeting the tar sands. Um, and we were doing that by targeting uh, one of the transportation points um, and the Kinder Morgan uh, point in particular in Vancouver. Uh, so we, were, we surrounded the Kinder Morgan termin terminal um, on the land and on the water. There were more than 800 people there, um, and uh, coincidentally, um, our action also fell days before the National Energy Board made made its recommendation on um, on the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Awesome. Um, so I want to get to the Kinder Morgan in half a second, but first, I just want to. I, I, not everyone gets the chance to sort of go out and, and be in these sort of actions. Uh, you know, some people it, it's not financially viable. So there's many reasons why they can't really do it. Uh, so I'm wondering if you sort of paint the picture of. So you were there in Vancouver, and I, you, can you sort of paint the sort of what that was like? Like, what were you doing? What was sort of people around you? Was the energy like? And sort of how did that feel? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we were going into that action just really, really energized seeing everything that was happening around the world. So knowing that thousands of people had been out on the streets of the Philippines um, the weekend before, knowing that the day before people were were blocking the other end of the Kinder Morgan pipeline, like the American end um, at the oil refiner refineries in Anacortes. So we were energized going in knowing that. Um, but the action itself was really, it was a remarkable thing. You know, like I think people often have this Im image of protesters that they're always standing up against something, but we were very clearly there um, communicating our vision for the future um, and like and the better uh, world that we want to see if we do break free from fossil fuels. So um, our action on the land um, involved, um, we had, so we had about over 600 people that were there uh, in a park close to the Kinder Morgan facility. Uh, so we, we came together um, and we marched down the street to the Kinder Morgan facility. We had really gorgeous banners, so everything from keep it in the ground banners um, to banners saying panels, not pipelines that stand for indigenous sovereignty um, we really had a really great arts team and a lot of people came up to me afterwards saying that it was one of the most beautiful actions that they had seen because of the really gorgeous art um, once we got there um, we were really like we had there isn't a lot of space outside the gates so like because we were such a large crowd we had really essentially just blocked the entire road that was there um, we had uh, we had locks that we used, and we locked um, our locks to the gates of the facility with messages tied in ribbons. So people had their own messages um, for Prime Minister Trudeau, for Kinder Morgan, just messages on, on why we need to break free from fossil fuels on the West Coast. Um, so uh, one woman uh, that I spoke to, um, Audrey, who's from the uh, Muskegon Nation, uh, so it was uh, her... Uh, her people's territories um, said that, that by locking the gates, it was actually that lock was setting her free. It was communicating a message, and just the permanence of that message on those gates um, was something that she found was um, setting her free, uh, which I found to be quite powerful. Um, we also had a tripod, a, a really uh, large. Uh, three-legged uh, structure that we created, and we hung a banner off of it, which was a banner uh, addressing uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. So it said, uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, the future is 100% renewable energy. Um, it was, so that was that was kind of a way of us, way for us to hold space and, and block traffic from coming in as well. Um, 
We also uh, painted a giant mural at the gates. So we had dozens of people that were painting a mural um, that was showcasing different kinds of solutions that we want to see. Um, and it, the banner read, or uh, sorry, the, the mural read, we have the solutions. So that was a really beautiful thing to be able to create together um, at this point of destruction, essentially. Um, and then on the water, we had about 200 kayaks um, launch from, from North Vancouver, so from the other side of the Kinder Morgan facility. And then they came to the to the ports as well. So the the kayaks formed a giant flotilla that surrounded the facility on the water. Um, and there were there was a there were some folks that took the extra step and um, crossed uh, the boom containment um, the containment boom in that area. Um, and uh, the folks on kay- kayaks as well had messages that they delivered. So they had their messages on ribbons as well, and they tied them uh, to the gates of the facility as well. So it was a really remarkable thing. Uh, those of us that were on the land were trying to see, there was like a little opening where we could kind of see the kayak action, but we couldn't see it for very long. So I was on the land, so I didn't get a great shot of the the kayak um action, but we do have a lot of coverage of it, and a lot of it is on um, our website, which is canada.breakfree2016.org, so we have our pictures or videos up from that action. Atiyah, I just wanted to ask you, so the the aims, I think, of Break Free are very clear. They're embedded in the name. Um, You've just sort of described the quality of the action that happened out west. In addition to the action being done and the experience that it provided to the people who are part of it, how do you measure success when you you launch these kinds of initiatives? What does success look like to you um, beyond just, you know, the action itself happening and the nature in which it happens? How will you know that you're having an impact when you do this kind of work? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think um, there's multi, uh, there's definitely multiple layers of what we want to accomplish through an action. And I think um, for with Break Free and particularly in Vancouver, one of the major goals was um, to create a movement of people that has the skills um, and knowledge that they need in order to continue mobilizing and continue mobilizing at very specific political moments. So prior to Break Free, we had trainings for kayaktivists because this is something that has happened in other parts of the world. It hasn't happened so much um, in Vancouver, where we have people taking to the water on kayaks to uh, take direct action against fossil fuel infrastructure. So I think skill building was a big piece of it. Um, And now I I do feel quite confident as we've come out of that action that we've empowered people to have the skills that they need and to be able to to re-mobilize when they need to for for particular political moments. So that's a big thing as well. I think growing our movement and, um, and really making it very clear that there is a strong people's movement that is standing and resisting the fossil fuel industry is a key piece as well. I think that when people take escalated action, I think it raises um, people's, it increases people people's understanding about a particular issue um, in a way that more passive actions don't necessarily. Um, and I also think that, you know, large-scale mobilizations where people are engaging in different ways are also a great way of growing people, g- growing a movement and increasing the amount of people that are willing to come out onto the streets and take action as well. Um, and on, on, on a final note, I think it's very clear that it, this this uh, this action did send a message um, to the government, and I think it is something that it, it's made it very clear that there will be a there will be a large mobilization of people that is willing to resist um, fossil fuel expansion on the West Coast and around the world. So I think it, it does send a message to politicians and decision makers and media um, about the power uh, of our movement. Amazing. Uh, speaking of decision makers, uh, uh, the the National Energy Board uh, shortly thereafter this, and it, it's funny as you send a message and then immediately they're like, "La la la, I can't hear you," uh, because the, shortly thereafter, uh, of course, the 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 Kinder Morgan pipeline or the twinning 
uh, of Kinder Morgan's controversial Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, was approved by the National Energy Board. Uh, it's a $5 billion project. Uh, and they approved it with 157 conditions, uh, which is always the sounds like, how do you have 157 conditions and still be, but this is cool. There's 157 things wrong with it, but it's cool. That's this, no other no other part of the world is that a thing that exists. I don't think. Um, but it, and again, and, and, and all the quotes are almost exactly out of the things you sort of see in the Harper era. It's you know their quotes is it's in Canada's public interest, uh, and and it's like who so who did like you just had 800 people show up at your at Kinder Morgan saying this is not in our interest, and then two days later be like it is. How's that going? Um, so obviously, so I don't want to get your. Uh, it's good. No, it's because you missed the fact that all the people who are against it are extremely ignorant and also f- uh, foreign funded uh, oh, right. Stefan. All that's right. that's why he see he's trying to be nice mm. right so he didn't he doesn't want to say that but he's saying that you're all either paid to have this opinion or stupid ah, well I think Atia is uh, is foreign funded that's my, my bad I think Atia yeah is, she doesn't seem dumb so she yeah. has to be foreign funded. <laughs> um, but, but but that's sort of the that's like when I get obviously Darren's parodying one of the consistent responses to mm-hmm. any action among them it's 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 you know it's the whole I'm sorry well, I have to yeah, one yeah. More. this is a perfect time for one more anecdote I had my back Pocket. Yeah. So uh, as uh, you know, again, I, I won't spend a bunch of time with it, but I, I've been off my feet and so I have nothing to do with, but well, you know, read the news for a long time. And, uh, and during the break free action, I, I was actually not, not aware what was going on because I've been sort of irregularly plugged in, but I saw all the, the bluster on, on Twitter. And one of the things, there was just a stream of stuff by the completely not at all funded by oil sands companies, uh, uh not at all, uh, you know, a uh, propaganda outlet oil sands action, uh, account, um, that was, you know, putting out all sorts of uh, things like that and break free the foreign funded, whatever, all these, all the normal nonsense. And usually when I smack them upside the head with something, they usually like jump on, jump back and like, you know, fight back and send a bunch of like terrible thing, whatever. And anyway, so what I just said was that, you know, it's uh, unlike the completely unfunded and not at all prepared in advance high res copies of uh, propaganda stuff that you're now spamming this hashtag account with this hashtag with on Twitter, uh, to which they actually didn't reply for once. Um, so I thought maybe I got their attention. I was also going to say, and by the way, thank you for helping make this hashtag trend. But I, I went back to sleep at that point. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, so that's what's the fascinating about Kinder Morgan piece of words that is that it's wildly unpopular. The, the mayor of Vancouver is against it. The provincial government is against it. Uh, even, and this is the provincial government who last week we reported said that Trudeau was not doing enough to export uh, – to, to, to use uh, natural resources in the West is still also then against this pipeline. It's, it's a wildly unprofitable pipeline, pipeline. So, T, I want to go back to you and sort of uh, – as now as, as, an, as an organizer and as an activist, what's the next step on, on this particular issue? Yeah, and uh, just to add, <laughs> number of people and organizations and groups that are against it, the Slave of Tooth Nation on the West Coast is actually taking uh, the government to court over Kinder Morgan as well. So there's just every level of resistance and every level of opposition to the pipeline. Um, so the question was about the next steps mm-hmm. for the movement or the next steps for the pipeline. Uh, well, the next steps for well, both, if you want to go for it. Yeah, well, so the National Energy Board has uh, recommended the approval, um, and they've done that after... Um, um, doing kind of doing public hearings, um, so talking to folks in the community, um, those that were approved in the, to be um, to be stakeholders were able to to offer their opinion um, to the review panel, um, and I think they've also done uh, you know they've done an environmental assessment. So it's received an approval from the National Energy Board, um, and the Trudeau government actually announced earlier this year that they would do a secondary review of pipelines as well. So now they're going to proceed with doing a climate test and doing a public, another public review that's going to be run by the government and not by the National Energy Board. So just the fact that after 
going through a review, it needs to now go through another review um, because, you know, <laughs> because the first review was completely inadequate. Climate change, for example, was not taken into consideration as well because it does not fit within the National Energy Board's definition of the environment. Um, it's just kind of, it's a little bit ludicrous. Uh, so it's going to go through that review process as well. Um, and then we should, we are told in the timeline, this keeps changing, that we should hear a decision um, soon afterwards. So I, I've, I've heard the end of the year, but I think that might have changed as well. I don't know if anyone can correct me on this one. Um, yeah, and, uh, and so, and simultaneously, I think the review of... Uh, of Energy East is going to begin as well. So there's going to be multiple pipeline reviews happening um, simultaneously. So that's where Kinder Morgan is at in terms of process and in terms of federal government process. Um, where the movement stands, well, so just um, I think on on Wednesday, um, so the day before the, the decision came out, um, there were already people that were taking action. So there was a, a there was a tinker uh, going into the terminal and there were activists that had taken part in the break-free action that were there to kind of blockade the tanker. And I don't know if you've seen any pictures, but it almost looks like the tanker is in tears when the activists <laughs> are, are, standing, are uh, taking action in front of it. So uh, I think, you know, it, it's only been a few days since break-free and it's been very clear that there is a wave of people that is willing to take more and more escalated action against the pipeline. I think definitely around um, the federal government's public uh, consultations that will take place on the pipeline Pipeline, there will be people engaging uh, people in the community, people that didn't get a chance to take part in the hearings the first time around because they were climate scientists or because they didn't fall within the very, very narrow definition of what is a stakeholder in the National Energy Board process. Um, I think those folks will have an opportunity to voice their opposition. Uh, meanwhile, the, meanwhile um, the slave tooth case against the pipeline is also, uh, you know, going into full force. Um, and we also have people that are uh, that are in addition to the review, is going to be taking taking action, taking direct action against the pipeline. So, so this is by no means the end of the story, I think, yeah. both from a, a government process point of view, but also from the movement's perspective, or also the the lawsuit that you're you're talking about that has been put forward by this First Nation. Um, what really stands out, I think, with Kinder Morgan is just around the the traffic, the tanker traffic. It's supposed to increase by what something like 70%. And I think the uh, current Vancouver mayor has come out and said that an oil spill would be devastating um, for the area, and he's actually going to run on a platform opposing this. So I think this is just a really interesting example where we're seeing a lot of pro-pipeline rhetoric um, coming from the political level and coming from the media that, you know, Kinder Morgan actually might be an opportunity um, to really highlight some very obvious uh, pitfalls um, on a number of levels, not just from the environmental and climate lens, but also from the community lens. So I think we know that this is a story that we're going to have to follow on an ongoing basis. And, and people who may feel a little demoralized by the NEB decision should not at all feel that this is the end of the line. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so so uh, two quick points on that. First, uh, we're going to have a music break in about one minute, Ed, so get ready for that. And two, uh, if people are energized by this NAB, uh, I'll give a TA a chance to sort of say, to give a chance to pitch on how can people get involved uh, in, 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 with 350.org or, or break free if it's continuing uh, and, and also to sort of pitch, give us your pitch basically. The pitch. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, there's always an opportunity if you were on the West Coast or if you're visiting the West Coast to get involved with the local groups that have taken action um, against uh, the um, 
against the pipeline. So there's a 350 Vancouver uh, that is uh, involved. Um, there is uh, leadnow.ca uh, is also involved with uh, leading kind of the next wave of uh, of actions and uh, resistance against Kinder Morgan. Um, we also have groups like Broke, which is a local group in Burnaby, taking action as well. So there's quite a few. Um, there's also opportunities to plug in and really show solidarity with the Slave of Tooth case. And, um, and if there's opportunities um, to donate there, I think you can find out on the Slave of Tooth website. Um, so, but definitely I think showing support on social media and showing solidarity with the case is very important as well. Um, yeah, so there's multiple ways to plug into that. And uh, if you are interested, you can also um, follow 350.org online and uh, we can offer you updates about actions that are taking place locally against Kinder Morgan. Amazing. Uh, so in our, our last section, come back. Uh, if you, We'd love to have you stay if you want for our new section. Uh, obviously, Darren is going to have his... Darren's got. A, Darren's promised me he had an axe to grind. Uh, I'm so playing Kevin Farmer this week. I told uh, you. All right, amazing. Uh, does that mean you're going to... Expect all the fan mail that Kevin normally gets is coming to you. So I sure hope so. It's going to be a deluge. Um, and once again, you're listening to CIUT 89.5. This is the Green Majority. Ed, what are you going to play us? Hey, um, I just want to mention, I never thought I'd know this much about pipelines in my entire life. <laughs> like, I, I know way more than ever ever needed to know about pipes. Um, all right, so we got Sunglasses at Night by uh, Corey Hart. <laughs> Thank you very much for that tune, Ed. Uh, it's been it's been at least a couple years since I heard Sunglasses at Night. It's always an enjoyable time. Uh, you know, sometimes you want to wear sunglasses at night. Uh, it's also the silliest song. I think, <laughs> um, but uh, but we're on to the news section. Once again, this is the Green Majority on CAGA 9.5. Uh, perhaps listening on, on Rabble.ca or one of our wonderful radio syndicates or, of course, our podcast, which you can be found on GreenMajority.ca. Uh, but all of that, uh, M.A., you have, uh, you have a news story for us. 
Yeah, it's actually a blog that's on the HuffPost, and it's by Nick Fillmore. And the title is Attawapiskat and Fort McMurray, Prove Not All Crises Are Seen as Equal. So I just felt that this was a very timely article to discuss. And, and basically, the author uh, of the, the blog um, is, is pointing out that there's been this overwhelming response and uh, both on both from members of the public, the members of the Canadian public and government to the crisis in Fort McMurray. Um, and he's comparing it rather um, sadly uh, to the crisis that has been experienced in Ottawa opposite First Nation. And, um, you know, where we've seen about 100 uh, people uh, attempt suicide since the fall and very large numbers in in the recent months of young people. And he's comparing the significantly different approaches, both we've seen from government and the public, and and trying to make this comparison, not by saying, you know, this is a zero-sum game, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be empathy and compassion for the people of Fort McMurray, but why are we not seeing the same level of resources and the same reaction extended to the people of Attawapiskat? And, you know, I just wanted to make a few comments on this, and then I'll, I'll put it out to both of you, uh, Darren and Stefan. One, I'm not trying to point out that there should be some sort of competition between these two crises. They're very different in nature. But one thing we, we do see across the board is that when we see humanitarian crises, let's say, like um, – wildfires destroying communities, or we see Hurricane Haiyan, Canadians are very quick to respond. What we see with uh, prolonged crises, as we've seen in our First Nation communities, and that do become acute, um, like they have in Apoatiscat, is that people are sort of at a loss as to how to react, or it doesn't resonate with them, or perhaps they're just so used to seeing a certain community of people have prolonged suffering, um, that there isn't the same reaction. And what I believe is important about this blog is that this should be a bit of a wake-up call for us. Um, this is happening in our own backyard uh, here in the province and we should be feeling the same level of human compassion and we should be prompting the government to respond proportionately with the resources and support that this community needs. Yeah, I think I think Canada is really good at disaster relief, uh, but but is, the disaster has to be something that we just don't like. That that's an act of God, quote unquote. You know, it's like we're really good at responding to things that are just sort of outside of us, uh, and then really bad at looking inward. And I think in, in, to, to highlight this point, you look at the reactions uh, between the, 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 the state of reactions between uh, the Fort McMurray "We Will Rebuild" uh, and the John Crutchian's uh, People from Attawapset should just move. And people would say that might be called just pure out and out racism, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like well, it's like it, it's funny. It's it's we don't accept the reason why Attawapset needs to stay there, but of course, oil is a perfect reason why Fort McMurray needs to stay there. Uh, it's it's as if there's we've decided that 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 our reasons for people for where people are make sense, where other people's reasons for where they are doesn't make sense, and therefore they should submit to ours. Uh, and that's, that's that's yeah, it's out and out racism, obviously. Uh, but Darren, uh, you have an axe to grind. Uh, I do. It is now twelve. It's now 11.50, which is the Kevin Farmer time of the show. Uh, so grind that axe, sir. Which is great because I can actually provide a segue and answer uh, MA's question at the same time. 
because I'm Amazing. that good. Well done. Um, so the, the the thing about that, I think, um, I think honestly, my honest assessment uh, is that Canadians are very prideful of their thing. They they like to help, and and genuinely, they're very helpful. And we do have a generally speaking a national identity around you know, coming to the rescue. Um, however, we're very, very concerned with being seen to be do so, uh, has been my observation. And I think that plays a role in why, uh, generally we're a lot better at sort of flashy things rather than ongoing things, because it's harder to be sort of commended and be seen and be honored for helping an ongoing problem with no easy long short-term solution. Um, you know, so people love to do that and they'll post pictures. Look, I donated, you should donate too, which is great. We want to help all those people, but there is a segment of not very nice pride that goes along with that, that I think contributes to the issue that that you've both sort of pointed out, um, so the the way that this provides a transference to what I the other thing I want to talk about, which was on our 500th episode when I added a little bit at the end, um, I was actually having a really rough uh, day that day, so I was feeling very existential and philosophical. Um, and but it, it's been it's been a thing that I've been thinking about for a while, which is this idea that you know even if we solve climate change, there's a bunch of other problems that are coming, um, and. The only real way to do this rather than just bumping from problem to problem is to start bundling them, especially when the solutions overlap. Uh, one of these problems, and, and I've been reading, you know, because I've had so much free time, it's pretty easy to get through all the environment news, even as much as there is, because I do that anyway. Uh, in my normal schedule, with all the additional time, I've also been able to burn through just about every major article written on the American uh, political sp spectrum and have made it as far as the technology and sciences category. All Every article almost every day on getting into that third topic. Um, that's how much free time I have. Um, and one of the things there that I've seen, I mean, we've been, there's been some really amazing stuff coming uh, out of the science pages and this will make sense in a second where I'm going with this. Um, we have uh, four uh, robots called Valkyrie uh, that were just developed to uh, go and actually not just survey Mars, but actually be our being, uh, were released by NASA for tweaking to go and set up permanent habitable uh, space on Mars. So we're now talking about colonizing Mars within 20 years, uh, at least to a limited degree, which will be set up by robots. Um, we have uh, all sorts of manufacturing, 3D prototyping, rap rapid prototyping, uh, laser cutting, all sorts of automation, massive advances in AI and uh, that uh, the so-called, uh, so, what's that word? The uncanny valley mm. when it comes to animatronics and, uh, and Android technology. Um, the the pace and and scale of our technological ability um, from the powerful and rich nations and companies, uh, Google's automated cars. I could spend the next four hours talking about all the stuff that you've probably heard of some of, but you, I guarantee you haven't heard of all of it. Of just these mind-bogglingly futuristic things that are either just arrived, just about to arrive, uh, or will are are conceivably going to happen very soon. There's one common chord here, though, on almost all of them is that. And not so much with the ones I mentioned. I wish I had better notes, but I just didn't. I don't have my computer today. Uh, but there's almost one common chord across all of them, which is that either directly or indirectly, almost all of these things wipe out entire sectors of the workforce. Completely redundant. Uh, completely wipe out manufacturing. Manufacturing is going to cease to exist in, in all but most specialized cases within 15 or 20 years due to automation. Uh, basically, every all, there's very, very few jobs that are going to be left uh, once industry gets a handle on mass producing these technologies. And um, 
so we're going to have another crisis. We're going to have another crisis where basically 60% of our population is out of work. Um, now we can let that happen and then continue to feed into this uh, narrative where 1% of the planet has all the money and all the power and the rest of us are essentially serfs and or slaves to this because we're simply left by the wayside. Or we can acknowledge that these that this concentration of wealth, while it's been pretty awesome in the form of um, producing really amazing technologies, they, what good are they if they don't benefit us, right? So I think along with this and when we're solving some of these problems and part of the reasons why I'm so interested in, in Bernie Sanders and, and stuff like that is, you know, just taking climate action isn't good enough. There, the, the climate change is a symptom of a much larger problem, with this, which is the fact that the way that we're organizing our society currently is simply set up to create these types of problems at this scale. It didn't used to because the scale was small enough, but now the scale is bigger and some of these problems are coming out. And if we don't take a look, take this opportunity to take a look, and I think it's also the only way to solve issues around climate change is to take a fundamental look at what's causing these problems, what are causing these errors, why we suddenly realize we have a global disaster on our hands and the system is paralyzed and doing nothing because people with all the power have decided that it's not in their best interest to do anything about it, that there is a fundamental underlying problem here. So I'm not going to get into what I think that solution is. That's as you, as a, as a wrap up, I know Ed wants to say something here too. Um, it was that the, basically that's where I was going with the three part series that unfortunately because of my illness got sort of kiboshed. You did an excellent job standing in, but I didn't get to my third part. So we're going to just, we're actually going to just redo the whole thing when I'm better. But that's what I'm getting at is that there, this isn't sort of just idle musing. Um, there is a fundamental, even deeper problem below this stuff. Um, and unless we address that, it's, we're just going to move on to the next issue. Um, and I think that's, what we can really be talking about at this point, because I think there's actual interest in nonviolent revolution. I think the, the Bernie Sanders, uh, it, ongoing watching that has shown that, that there is taste for it. And I think that without it, we are lost. Cause even if we solve climate change, we have 10 other problems coming that are just like it. And that we're not going to have a trouble dealing with for the exact same reasons. Um, I just wanted to mention, um, I, I actually know quite a lot of, I watched some videos on, on robots, you know, different jobs they could take over, you know, um, and, and one that I found interesting was, um, with, with the advancements in AI technology, there's a, a new, um, it's sort of like an AI, um, and basically it, it re can replace what doctors do in that it, you know, knows all the research, you know, medical research results. It knows like the entire patient history. It knows, and it can take, you know, samples from patient histories from like all across the nation. Um, and, and they're saying that like it would have, you know, uh, much better results than any doctor could, um, and, and much lower, you know, patient death, uh, that, that tend to happen a lot with, with actual doctors. And it was just something interesting where it's not a job you usually think robots could take over, but it's definitely interesting. Is it a job? <laughs> robots are going to take it. Yeah, yep, basically. <laughs> well, there, I feel like there's a, once, once a robot can host a community radio station, then I'm concerned. <laughs> there's already, the, call me when that happens. We've already spoken about how the, uh, there's bots doing all the, all the news journalism on sports. So yeah, we're, it's a matter, <laughs> we're just talking about a few uh, version generations here. Right. We just, they just need a, they just, you know, the, they just need your silky smooth voice. So just never record your voice <laughs> in enough words so they can then say it and then you're fine. Damn. Yeah. Uh, although they could just take, oh, then, you know, not, you know, to, to expand this further, they could just take all of the recordings of all of this podcast, previous podcasts, now 500 episodes of words. They could probably do a pretty good you impression. I, I could do it of myself now with current <laughs> existing technology. That's true. Uh, so we have, uh, so, so four minutes left. And I think to jump off uh, just on your new little piece, because I have one thought on that, uh, which is, well, two thoughts on that. First, uh, I said this on the last week's show. Uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to win. 
Uh, oh, he's not. But the point, the point is, is that the movement, despite all of the efforts of everybody in the establishment is now still saying Bernie or bust. Anyway, that's a longer conversation yeah, yeah, we're going yeah. to, but whether or not he makes the domination is irrelevant to the point I was making. No, for sure. No, for sure. And I, I was actually building off that point, uh, which that I, I think w- w- one of the most interesting uh, correlators to that was what you do, w- what, what that sort of coalition people does afterwards. And I think the most interesting opportunity there is to do, so, is to actually start doing what the Tea Party did very effectively. Uh, which was to go to the state and local levels and and, and and use your influence from from above to actually sort of win those smaller seats and actually shift and shift politics from the bottom up. And I think that's actually where a lot of the uh, a lot of the opportunity exists within this movement. Uh, but Emma, we have about two minutes left, and I want to get your your thoughts on on really any part of the whole show. Yeah, I, it's hard not to comment on this most recent thread. I think something that's really significant, particularly that has happened in the U- U.S., is the expansion of the conversation. The fact that someone like Bernie Sanders can come in and be in such a prominent uh, position in a presidential race has dramatically extended the things that are part of the public dialogue um, that would not have been acceptable. You know, he successfully forced a conversation on whether or not the U.S. should change its policy on Palestine and Israel. That yeah. alone, even just forcing yeah. them to have that conversation, means we're we're at a crux of an extremely yeah. important time in history. And he's, you know, he's coming up on a movement. So as much as he might be an exceptional person, it's about a sea change, right? It's it's not that all about one individual. It's about that the that there's a shift in the collective psyche that's happening, I'd say around the world, but I think it is of particular note in the US. And it's about bringing a human face to things. I think the what you've discussed today, Darren, um, that is often overlooked is that we can mechanize things, we can talk about the achievement of function, and you've extracted the human being. And what we are often not capable of projecting or analyzing when we do things like that, I'm saying I'm using a royal we, obviously, is that we we can't always understand what's been lost by taking out the human interaction. And uh, I think what Bernie Sanders has done is injected humanity back into a lot of discussions where it was missing previously. Uh, and what a way to finish the show. Thank you so much, M.A. Thank you so much, Darren. Great to have you back. Uh, thank you to both our guests, Kevin and Atia, uh, and to our tech ed, of course. Uh, we will have a bonus show today, so uh, if you're on the podcast, keep listening. And if not, everyone have a great green week, and we'll see you all real soon. <laughs>